Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. Now, this episode is dedicated to all the victims of the Pulse shooting and those impacted by the shooting, which happened nearly a year ago today. And in the spirit of pride, I'm reminded to urge all of you uh, to make sure you use your power and privilege to create space uh, that is safe for everybody. That people should be able to show up in the fullness of who they are. As a gay black man in this country, I know what it's like to be in a world that doesn't always support my identity, that doesn't always make peace with my identity. I also know that we can't let hate win, that this will take all of us to push this world forward. Now, another thing I know to be true is that the way we think about the world shapes the way that we act in the world. It's in that spirit that I've invited artists and celebrities on the pod to talk about how they think about using their platform for good, for something bigger than them. I had John Legend on the pod, second episode, and now Katy Perry. Uh, Katy and I have been coordinating this for a while and finally made it happen this past weekend. I've known Katie for about a year. We have a very close mutual friend, Cleo Wade. And I texted Katie in April and said, hey, I'd love to have you on the pod. And she, uh, we made it, made it happen. And this is right around her uh, album release. And I say that because she has a house retrofitted as a, like a Big Brother experience. So she's live streaming everything she does for uh, four days. And there are people coming to visit her and push her and challenge her and engage her on a host of issues. People could talk about whatever they want uh, when they get in the house. And I chose to talk about race, equity, and justice and her understanding her own work as an activist. Importantly, I wasn't the only person who was a part of this experience with her. There was DR Ballinger, Cleo Wade, Amanda Seals, RuPaul. Uh, so many people were there over the weekend and were able to engage her. You're going to hear our conversation. I learned a lot about Katie and her upbringing, the way she thinks about her art. Uh, and I'll share that with you here. And also Clarence uh, Wardell III is also talking about his work on the pod too. Here we go. And now let's talk about the news of the past week. It's the news. This is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And I'm joined by... Hey, it's Brittany Packnett, Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Dre. I'm uh, just Dre on Twitter, D-E-R-A-Y. Take it away, Sam. Yeah, so I have two pieces of news to bring today. Uh, the first is an article out of The Atlantic. The headline is, States with large Black populations are stingier with government benefits. Uh, and so they looked at the amount of money uh, in cash assistance, the, the TAMP program, uh, temporary assistance for needy families. But the amount of cash assistance going to uh, families living in poverty by state. Uh, and what they found was that states with larger black populations give less money uh, in welfare benefits to families living in poverty compared to states with, with fewer or a very small black population. I think this is interesting in part because first of all, this is not limited to welfare benefits, but in a whole range of, of areas, we find that, that Black folks are getting fewer benefits and more of the burdens uh, associated with, with social issues and with government compared to white folks. I think this is one of those pieces uh, that confirms another domain that that is true. And what's interesting about TANF, as we learned on the second episode of Pod Save the People, is that remember, uh, it's a Black grant now, not an entitlement, which means that there is a cap that decides how much each state gets. And that cap is the same cap as it's been since welfare reform in the 90s. And we know that TANF welfare is no longer the single biggest cash assistance to uh, low-income families anymore, that the earned income tax credit is actually the single biggest 
uh, cash assistance program in the country. So it's fascinating to see that there's still even disparities, given that it is so much less money and support than it even used to be across the board. I'm glad to see mainstream publications like The Atlantic publishing this. Um, Obviously, we've been talking about it for a couple of episodes. Scholars, activists all around the country have been talking about it for years, decades. Um, This is not news, right, to many of us that states do not tend to concern themselves with the most marginalized um, effectively. But I think some people think we make it up. Uh, And so I, I certainly encourage people to read the article um, and more importantly, to um, to trust the lived experience, the common lived experience of marginalized people um, that have been declaring this for a long time, right? And it's not just Black folks. Um, it's been happening to lots of people. Um, and it's not just social safety that it's been happening across multiple policy issues. For sure. And, and just to look at the actual amount here, it's like $506 a month for a single parent family of three uh, in Oregon, right? So you get $506 a month. Very few Black folks live in Oregon compared to the the population. Whereas Mississippi, it's $170 a month for the same family. Uh, And Mississippi has a much larger black population. So we're talking about a difference, uh, a huge difference if you're living in poverty, $506 a month compared to $170. And we need serious welfare reform in this country that it is wild that the amounts haven't changed since the 90s. Yeah. And I think, you know, speaking to this, what you were saying, Brittany, about it not being limited to, to welfare benefits, you know, when we think about the structure of opportunity and how government uh, interacts with different populations and how that varies by state. Uh, black folks often are are getting so fewer uh, resources compared to white folks, depending on the, the geography in which they live. So, for example, we could look at welfare benefits. We could also look at other issue areas, like, for example, mass incarceration, where the states that have you know the toughest sentencing laws are the states where more black people live as well. Right. So 54 percent of the black population in the United States lives in the South. And the South has like the most voter suppression, uh, voter ID laws, it has the strictest mass incarceration sentencing laws. Mm-hmm. It has, you know, these fewer welfare benefits. Uh, and so you're really living at the intersection of all of those different things. Uh, and they're all impacting folks uh, and particularly black folks living in these areas. You know, my um, my father's side of the family's roots are in Mississippi, Biloxi and Centerville and areas near there. Um, and I think inside of Black families, a lot of times we have these conversations like, well, you know, why do, why do you leave, right? Like it's the North or the Pacific Northwest or some other places friendlier to Black folks. Why wouldn't you leave a place that has clearly been historically very treacherous for Black people like Mississippi? Um, and A, you're asking people to leave their home, right? Which is, which is, um, it's disrespectful to the roots that have been planted in a particular place. But thinking about, especially across the American South, how much blood, sweat, tears, and toil from enslaved uh, Black people are in the ground there and, and that have built the structures and systems and buildings and institutions that can cont- that continue to oppress us, that's disrespectful as well. Sam, your second? So the second piece of news that I have uh relates to the Philando Castile case. So Philando Castile was killed last year um, near Minneapolis, and now a trial is underway. The officer was charged, I believe it's with first-degree murder. Um, and there's a trial underway right now, and an article has come out that has sort of uh, shed light on what the officer's defense uh, that they're using in court is. And the defense is, and the quote here is, the officer saying, 
I was go I felt like I was going to die. That's the quote. Um, and this is wild to me because if, if you think about that case, again, there was, this was a case where, um, Philando's girlfriend was filming, uh, on Facebook live, what was happening. Uh, the kid was in the back seat. Um, and what happened was that apparently Philando was reaching for his wallet, uh, after saying that, you know, he, he got stopped at the traffic stop, he said, you know, I, 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 there's a gun in the car. I have a gun. I legally ha- have a right to have one. Um, sort of trying to diffuse the situation and be clear. Uh, and then reaching for a wallet to get his ID, his driver's license, as the officer had, you know, instructed him to do. And then the officer fired several shots at him, uh, saying that, you know, now the officer saying that he felt threatened, that, that Philando was going for a gun. And it's wild because, you know, it's a situation where this case essentially comes down to the question of whether a jury, uh, which is, you know, the jury is almost entirely white, uh, whether the jury will think it is reasonable for an officer to feel like, quote, they're going to die when a black man reaches for his wallet in the car. Um, and we, this isn't the first time the jury will believe that that is a reasonable thing. And I think as long as that's the case, it's very hard to make progress in this area. So I just wanted to like put that out there um, mm. because we've seen this again and again and again, and, and you know, it's happening you know, in this trial right now. Yeah. I mean, well, one, I'm glad that you're putting it out there. Um, often we find that people are incensed as they should be at the moment of the actual incident at the moment of the killing. Um, but it's important to remember that we have to see these things through. Um, obviously it is, better than usual that there is a trial in this case. Um, but, but all of your points are absolutely right. This is a, a hard case for me to talk about in part because I still hear so many people saying, you know, if you just comply with police officers, then you'll be able to live. And this is a clear cut case that that is absolutely not true. There are hundreds just like it. Um, but it is also hard for me knowing that this was caught on video, that there was a child in the car and that many people still refuse to acknowledge the truth. So this, this one is just is, is hard. But um, shout out to the activists um, and protesters in Minnesota that have continued to shed light on what's happening in their region and what's happening in this case. Yeah, and the only thing I'll add is uh, that it remains incredibly hard to convict officers. So like we've talked about before, um, around 540 people have been killed by the police this year, and only in three cases has an officer been charged. We think about how easy it is this, for this officer to just get on the stand and say that he's afraid. And, you know, we all saw the video and the only people that had something to fear were the people in the car. So I'm hopeful about the outcome of this. But it is a reminder that, like you said, Brittany, we got to be vigilant. And like Sam, you always remind us that the numbers aren't on our side. And like Vanita talked to us with one of the past episodes is that the standard uh, at the federal level is actually really high and almost impossible. But at the state and local level, uh, we can work to change it to hold officers accountable as a condition of the law. So the fight continues. Brittany? So I guess it is my turn. Two pieces of news. The first is a quick update on something we discussed a few weeks ago um, in regards to the emoluments clause and Donald Trump. You may remember um, that his administration is saying they would, quote unquote, happily uh, uh, kind of refund the U.S. and give money back to the U.S. Treasury that was received through their businesses from foreign governments, but that they wouldn't look um, for any additional detail. Um, in terms of foreign entities that would be coming through as individuals and providing money for um, the various portions of the Trump Corporation. 
Um, the latest update is that in response to a lawsuit that was filed in January by Crew Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, one of the arguments that is being made by the Justice Department is that um, Donald Trump should not be subject to the Emoluments Clause, in part because neither was George Washington. Um, so um, if you can believe it or not, the argument is that um, George Washington exported uh, flour and cornmeal from his Mount Vernon plantation to places <laughs> like Portugal, Jamaica, and mm. England. Um, also, Thomas Jefferson from his plantation exported tobacco to the UK. And so for those reasons, and apparently many others, um, this is a, a reason why Donald Trump should not be subject to the Emoluments Clause. It's... Um, should be shocking, but it's not, right? Um, but lest I remind you that on Mount Vernon, there were no less than 317 enslaved people consistently during its uh, running. Um, many more at, um, at Monticello, uh, J Thomas Jefferson's plantation. And the idea that um, Donald Trump's actions are defensible because of the actions of a slave-owning president uh, should tell us a lot in terms of uh, exactly what this this administration is trying to accomplish. And, you know, we think about Make America Great Again, and they are going as far back as they can. Again, as we've all said, to a point in America that wasn't great for so many of us. Uh, it's also interesting that these legal arguments, I mean, they're digging deep here, right? Really uh, deep. <laughs> I'm fascinated to see if, if he will, George Washington, if they will, if he will tweet something contrary, like he did with the Muslim ban, right? Said it wasn't a ban. His administration said it wasn't a ban. Then he tweets that it's a ban. Uh, this is a pretty exceptional yeah. argument. Yeah. I mean, this is not the first time that we've heard this administration say that, you know, they believe in the Constitution and they're all about America. But, you know, for this case, for some reason, the president should be exempt, completely exempt from the law, right? The Constitution. We saw this before, right? We've seen this many times in this administration where they're just like, well, you know, the, the president can't be indicted. He can't be charged. You know, he can't, the special counsel <laughs> can't do this and that because he's the president. It's just like, you know, the laws just don't apply to this president in their view. And I think that is so dangerous, right? And it's particularly dangerous and hypocritical given how they are using the same laws uh, as a tool to lock up black and brown folks uh, who do not have sort of the status and the privilege of, of being in elected office. My second piece of news um, is actually related in a way. The University of Virginia, UVA, is planning on uh, creating a large memorial to honor the memories of thousands of enslaved people who work there. I want to Thank the Washington Post who reported on this, who used the phrase enslaved people instead of slaves throughout um, the, throughout the article to emphasize people first language, um, because there were people who were enslaved and not slaves for folks who, for whom that might be new. Um, but students have been pushing for this to happen for 10 years and it just received approval by the board. There were an estimated 5,000 people enslaved by the university that helped build and maintain the school um, founded, of course, by Thomas Jefferson. Um, it was some slaves directly from people who worked in and, and founded the space. There were also slaves, enslaved people, rather, who were apparently rented um, from, from nearby plantations um, to do everything from, from build buildings to maintain grounds. Um, and so I think that this is incredibly important. There are groups like uh, Equal Justice Initiative, EJI, who are doing a lot to ensure that um, we leverage architecture uh, and, and memorials to 
memorialize the true history of the country so that we do not continue to repeat it. I think especially as racialized terror continues to take a foothold in this country um, and is in some ways becoming more entrenched than it, it may have been in, in recent years past, um, that memorializing these kinds of things is critically important. I'm also hopeful that this is a first step of many, not just from the University of Virginia, but apparently many other universities who are examining doing potentially the same thing. Um, Georgetown, I think, is a good example. They had researchers look at um, the and, and do a lot of research on the enslaved people specifically who uh, built that university and have offered um, tuition assistance I can't remember if it was free tuition or tuition assistance to direct descendants of those enslaved people. I think that that is a start that, quite frankly, every single university that leveraged enslaved labor should be looking at. I also know that activists for many years, including activists uh, down at Mizzou a couple of years ago, were talking about um, free tuition across the country for African-Americans and indigenous folks, given the legacy in this country. So I'm glad to see this is happening at UVA, and I'm hopeful that it will be a first step for much more because I, I believe there's much more to do. And we think about uh, reparations is this, at, at its core, this idea of acknowledgement and repair. And it's hard to do systemic correction at scale when you don't acknowledge that trauma happened. And this is a way that we actually acknowledge that the trauma happened. So this is, like you said, Brittany, one step. It's not complete. Uh, but we talk about all the time that the wealth in this country exists on the back of black and brown people, right? That all of these institutions were built by free labor, by unpaid labor, by the enslaved. And that this is a small way to acknowledge that, especially when we think about the uh, the range of monuments in this country and very few of them honor the people that built it. Yeah, and it's not just for the institution, right? It's also for the student body. I remember, and the, and the general public that spends time on that campus. I remember Black Friday 2014 in St. Louis when activists organized the Black Friday mall shutdowns, right? And that it's most fundamental place, the idea is that business as normal cannot continue without the acknowledgement and attention that Mike Brown and other victims of police violence are owed. Uh, and so, you know, it, the idea was you cannot walk past us and, and step over us to go, you know, buy your gifts, buy your expensive clothing, buy your handbags of perfume without acknowledging the reality. Uh, and similarly, students shouldn't be able to freely walk around campus without being forced to acknowledge what happened there, how they are able to um, partake of this higher education and from whom the labor came. First piece of news is that the labor health Human Services and Education Appropriations Subcommittee has essentially rejected the DeVos budget that proposed a $9.2 billion cut in fiscal year uh, 2018. And that is a good thing for kids. So there were some school choice programs that were essentially vouchers uh, that were inexplicable from DeVos. And she also didn't guarantee that the Justice, that the Department of Education would enforce any laws with students with disabilities or any protections that weren't explicitly spelled out in federal law. She almost uh, clearly said that the Department of Education won't be issuing any guidance on anything that is unclear that might be about protecting students. So it is good that it was a bipartisan committee that rejected this uh, proposed budget from the Secretary of Education. And that's really saying something because this is that means it was too extreme for a Republican-controlled committee. Um, so that tells you sort of where she stands ideologically. Yeah, and I, you know, I need to do some more digging on exactly how we ended up here. But I also know that um, a lot of parent organizers, student organizers, um, community activists from around the country have been putting pressure 
uh, on this budget. Um, and so, you know, I'm hopeful that this is in part a result of elected officials listening to the people from whom they derive their power. But if nothing else, certainly continue to raise the noise because our, our kids deserve better. Got it. My second piece of news is an interesting topic that I was actually unaware of until recently, and it's about environmental issues with regard to prison. So there's an article that just came out uh, that talks about interesting research put out by the Earth uh, in Island Institute. So if you go to earthisland.org, you can see the report there. But some of the highlights are generally about the environmental conditions that impact uh, people who are in jail. So we often talk about mass incarceration, uh, talking primarily about making sure that we decrease the number of people that are in prisons is how it's used in the public uh, conversation. But it's also about making sure that until we get to a place where our solution for everything isn't putting people in cells, how do we make sure that they are taken care of and that they aren't abused, right? So we know that in the past decade, more than 3,500 California prison prisoners has become sick from valley fever and more than 50 have died from it. And there was a slight decrease after 2011 to fewer than 100 cases each in 2014 and 15. But last year, there was a spike with two 267 prisoners infected, and that in 2013, a federal court order mandated that the California Department of Corrections remove African-American and Filipino prisoners who were genetically at a higher risk of getting seriously sick from Valley Fever from a couple prisons, and about 2,600 prisoners were transferred. So it's fascinating. And the, the other piece that I'll mention from the report uh, was that at least 589 federal and state prisons are located within three miles of a Superfund cleanup site on the national priorities list, with 134 of those prisons located within just one mile. So Superfund sites are essentially, uh, they were dumping sites for toxic waste under the ground, and they are spread all across the country. And we've built the prison infrastructure either on top of them or very close to them. Uh, and again, these Superfund sites require incredible um maintenance and management from the EPA, uh, but we know that there, there are toxic things under them. So uh, we've essentially just disenfranchised people in jail even more with regard to their health. Wow. Yeah. And I, I think this is like adding to a, a large body of research on conditions and how conditions in prisons and how they're, how terrible they are. Right. So that the environmental impact that you talked about, Dre, it's also the impact on the psych, the psychological impact on prisoners. So, you know, we've heard about solitary confinement and how that actually you know, causes intense psychological damage to folks um, when you're essentially locked in a cage and, and you don't have contact with other human beings. Yeah. You know, one of the quotes that stuck out to me from the article um, was from Paul Wright, who's the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center. And he said, when trees have been cut down and everything has been contaminated and poisoned in the process, the final solution is, OK, now we're going to build a prison here. And I feel like those words point to the intention with which we have thrown people away in society. So that if, if there is land that is contaminated, instead of letting no one live on it, we um, should make a profit, right? That we should actually be able to um, leverage modern day slave labor um, on this land that has been so contaminated. Well, everybody, that's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. And now, my conversation with Katy Perry. So let's start at the beginning. Okay. You and I was saw... Was it the chicken or the egg? Was it the chicken or the egg? So I saw the Catherine Hudson interview. Yes. The interview with Catherine Hudson. Uh, and I also know that you grew up in the church. I sure did. My Both my parents are um, born-again Christians, and my whole life uh, mostly was about um, 
they were traveling ministers and they started church churches all over the country. So I lived in various places from three to ten. I lived in I lived in um, Santa Barbara and then Stockton. I lived in Florida. I lived in Tulsa. I lived in all these places, but maybe like seven of them, but in the USA. And how did you being raised in such a religious community sort of shape the way you think about the world? Well, um, first and foremost, I always like to preface with, I love my parents. And if I had a time machine to go back, I wouldn't, because the lessons that I've been able to learn from this have been so valuable, and I'm always on a hunt for um, information and knowledge and wisdom. And I've had to learn uh, some lessons through making mistakes and through hard hard truths that I had to face. And with my parents, I love them and they did the best job they could. But sometimes when you're raised in church or when you're raised with a set of rigid rules, um, you don't get to paint with a lot of colors. And you also are in this bubble of sorts. And for me, it was like, People only thought the same way my parents thought or my family thought, and that was it. I didn't have very much diversity. Um, I was uh, a lot of things were off limits to like me, what? like people, um, anyone in the LGBT community were off limits, um, and I think it was based on fear that it was contagious or what have you um, is how they believed, and so. Um, anyone that had like a differencing of opinion or basically anyone that didn't live by um, the book or not even the book, by, but just by these rules. And those rules kind of change in different religions. You know, some of the rules are um, bigger and smaller. You know, it just depends on what faith you belong to. And once again, like I respect all faiths. And um, I, I believe in God, and for me, that's something different. So my parents and I, we agree to disagree all the time, um, but we still hold space and love each other in it. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that like, you know, I, I can give you an example. For example, um, I wasn't allowed to eat Lucky Charms, and that sounds really? crazy. Well, my mom thought that luck was derived from Lucifer. So she didn't want me eating anything that like was like Lucifer. And then we called deviled eggs angel eggs. Did you really? Yeah. And you know that vacuum dirt devil? Yeah. It was it was it was it was all about angels. And I get it because words are powerful. Yeah, yeah. I get it. So like mom, you were do you were trying to do something right because words are vibration. Lucky charms are that is a that's new going, one. That's not, going I've not along, heard that one before. That's going Lucky a charms long is new. way. Yeah. Okay. It's going a long way. But that can give you some context as to how I was raised. And I was like, I wasn't allowed to listen to Madonna. I wasn't allowed to listen to even Michael Jackson. I was actually really? only allowed I wasn't allowed any pop culture influence um, and MTV. Oh, that was, that was crossing the line. And the funny thing is that like, of course, you know, back in the day when you could block um, certain cable channels mm -hmm. with a code, my parents would do 1947. I was like, mom, dad, you guys were born in 1947. Of course we're going to pick that code. And then when you go to church at night, we're going to change the channel, you yeah. know? So, um, so what could you listen to? Or like, what did you listen to? What influenced you? I listened to you? gospel. Okay. So I listened to gospel. I listened to a lot of Krista Lewis, who is like my number one. She was like my Madonna of music. Okay. Um, gospel and like I, my first two songs that I sang in church were "Oh Happy Day" and "His Eyes on the Sparrow." So anything that was spiritual. Did you watch Sister Act? That was my only. Okay, so Lauren Hill and Sister. I felt like. That was my only person I related to, right? Okay. When she came out and she did 
joyful, joyful, Lord, we adore thee. I mean, I was in it. And like Sister Act, for some reason, I was only allowed to watch Preacher's Wife. Um, <laughs> yeah, because my mom was the Preacher's Wife. Okay. And then Sister Act 2. And everybody goes, why not Sister Act 1? Because Lord, I wasn't in Sister Act 1. And that was the star. Uh-huh. And so I was, those were my references okay. growing up. And it was gospel and it was church. And then, you know, at 13 and 14, I just like, I remember my first CD I brought home was Incubus. And I brought it home. I put it in my knapsack and I pulled it out and I was hiding it from my parents, right? And I put my sweater on top of it and I pulled it out and I pulled out the CD and it broke into like the Ten Commandments. <laughs> like the Ten Commandments. It broke into and uh, I was just like, I'll never do that again. <laughs> and then cut to this worldwide pop star. I love, it. I love it. What have they, uh, what was the moment though that allowed you to access more of the world? Like how did that happen from you travel. being social travel? Travel. So I started going to Nashville when I was 13 and my mother came with me and, you know, my parents have always supported me along the way the best they knew how. Travel because of singing. Travel because of singing. Okay. So that's the main, like, that's the reason why the eyes in the mouth on the record cover on Witness that is out now. And that's the reason why we're here doing this talk. Got it, got it, got is it. Is because of the travel. And that became my education. And that became my real education. And that's, and I'm such a sponge and so curious. And so I would visit everywhere in the world and I would in, I would take in all of this information. And it all kind of, you know, I it all kind of like motivated my art in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's not just about my journey or my personal stories. It's about the things I hear people say, you know, again, I'm a sponge. So I'm very like influenced by outside things and sources. And, um, it's been an amazing re-education and it's something that I'm doing still to this day because I'm a constant chameleon and the things that I thought, you know, even four months ago, maybe they aren't the things I think today. Got it. Or the things I thought four years ago or the things I did, you know, 10 years ago or nine years ago or five years ago. I'd be like, well, if I did them today, maybe I wouldn't. But that's also the thing is like, you know, I sometimes have to learn through making mistakes. And I think a lot of us do. Um, but I live under a microscope. So yeah. everybody sees me making those mistakes yeah. in real this time. Is a, this is a microscope here. It's a microscope so here. You don't talk about your siblings often. No. But I know that you have a sister. I love and them. I know that you have a brother. Yes. Uh, and I met your sister before. Yes, yeah, she's fantastic. And my sister's my angel. My sister's name is Angela, and her angel is in Angela. So she's my angel. And my brother, I love. He's like the guy that I can joke around with and you your know, sister's older him. than you. She's older. I'm the middle child. So I was always fighting for attention. Okay. <laughs> you know, because I was not the eldest yeah. and I was not the baby. Okay. I was like, give me attention. Give me and, attention. And I'm a Scorpio. So. The so combination now, is lethal. Now, I want to transition to talk about race. So uh, before we get there, though, let's talk about activism. So yeah. I... One of the last times I saw you... Oh, no, I saw you a couple times, but I saw you at the, Hillary, at the Javits Center because yes. you were a big... A Hillary person. Yes. Now, what I would say and totally push me on this is that it seems like over the years you've started to think about your role as an entertainer, mm-hmm. uh, as somebody who wants to use her platform for something bigger than yourself. And it seems like that was, a, that was a spirit of the Hillary. Can you talk about what, how did you get to be so, so far out there for Hillary? What was the, what was the impetus for that? What's your reflection on that? Your whole period as, in, as somebody who was so outspoken for her? Yeah. I mean, it was a real growth spurt for me because 
listen, I've always had a voice because I can sing, but um, I almost created this character out of protection because I I wasn't really happy with being my birth name, Catherine Hudson. I didn't think it was enough. I didn't think it was sparkly. I didn't think it was great. So I created Katy Perry. And I'm still Katy Perry, right? But I'm not just one thing. And I've had to come to terms with the fact that, like, you know, even though it seems like I had I had so much to sing about and say, and I was writing these songs like Roar and Firework really for myself to, like, pep myself up, mm-hmm. that, like, there was still something missing. And, again, it's not a destination. destination. It's a journey. But there was something missing inside of me to um, – really know that I had a real voice, a real voice that mattered, that was enough, you know? And I think it started really being activated when um, I got to uh, stand alongside of Hillary, who I find is a very strong woman, a courageous woman, a brave woman, a beautiful woman. And um, she, you know, would continue to ask me again and again. She would say, come stand by my side and sing and use your voice. And in a way, I felt, you know, empowered. She gave me that power that I had, that I was looking for. I was looking for it because, like, I had given away. I had given away in relationships. I never had it in the first place. Yeah. And... She's, she empowered me, right? And she said, no, you do matter. No, you are enough. And like your perspective is something, you know, to talk about. And so I really found my inner voice because of that. And I told her that and I was so grateful for her for that. And like, don't know all the information. Don't know all the answers. Don't agree with everything she says. Don't agree with everything he says. Agree with, you know, some things all across the board. But what I did is I started educating myself in activism and putting my words to action. And like people are scared to be um, activists because they don't know all the answers. And, and how did you, how, what were some of the things that you did to educate yourself? Like, what does that look like for you? Well, for me, it's, it's several different things. It's reading. Um, and it's not, and it's good conversation with people that are smarter than you um, and more well-read than you. Sometimes it's documentaries like um, 13th. Sometimes it's, um, you know, like Leonardo DiCaprio's documentary was amazing about um, climate change. Um, And I'm a visual learner. So I learn through visuals and I also learn through audio. So audio books, um, different meditations, um, that's how I'm learning. And I'm also learning by listening. Yep. Just being a listener. So I just wanted to say that about the um, Hillary. the Hillary thing is yep. that like I think one thing that was so wonderful about the experience is that like I think I realized that it's something bigger than her. It's something bigger than me. It's about all of us together. And it's not about just one person. And you say something that really makes, like, really changes the way I think. It's not about the king. It's about the kingdom. Yeah, that was Chance the Rapper. Oh, but I'm but sorry. That's I've, also I've tweeted Chance. it. You tweeted yes, it. That's yes. why I saw Chance the Rapper. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Don't believe in the king. Believe in the kingdom. Okay, okay. Chance the Rapper. So, Chance the Rapper. Big fan <laughs> of Chance the Rapper. And we all know that. But I saw you tweet yeah, yeah, it. And yeah, that's yeah. also the yeah, internet, yeah, right? Yeah yeah, 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 There's a great example of the internet. It's like, always figure out where those sources are from. But, yeah. you know, I think that the test, the the intention is still the same is that it's not about one person. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. about all of us together and all of us realizing we have the power. No, We've always right. had it. Now about race, you have gotten, I don't know if you've seen it, but you've gotten pushback yes. about uh, these critiques about you 
appropriating culture, whether it is Black culture, whether it is Asian culture. Uh, And when we think about the difference between appreciation and appropriation, we think about appreciation as... uh, as acknowledging the roots of something, right? So like if you are engaging in culture, acknowledging the source of it, and we think about appropriation as sort of wholesale taking without acknowledging sort of the roots or where it came from. And that's a What's your response to the critiques that you've gotten sort of generally before we go into some specifics? Well, I wanted to say that's something I just learned, the difference between appropriating and appreciating is like what it means to actually appreciate versus appropriate. And I think, you know, in my intention to admire a culture and appreciate, I actually appropriated. I actually made a mistake because I didn't educate myself, because I didn't have the information or I didn't have the time. I didn't make the time. And, you know, with my life moving so fastly, like it's like I'm juggling 7,000 balls, but I made mistakes and I have made mistakes. And like I've made several mistakes, even in like the This Is How We Do video about how I wore my hair and having a hard conversation with one of my empowered angels, Cleo, about what does it mean? Why why can't I wear my hair that way? Or what is the history behind wearing the hair that way? And she told me about the power in Black women's hair mm. and how beautiful it is and the struggle. And I listened and I heard and I didn't know. And I won't ever understand some of those things because of who I am. I will never understand, but I can educate myself, educate myself. And that's what I'm trying to do along the way. And even in, you know, my intention to like appreciate Japanese culture, I did it wrong with a performance. And I didn't know that I did it wrong until I heard people saying I did it wrong. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's what it takes is it takes someone to say out of compassion out of love, hey, do you, this is where the origin is, you know, and do you understand? And not just like a clap back, you know, because it's hard to hear those clap backs sometimes and you want it, your ego just wants to turn from them. And I've had, I've been so grateful to have great teachers and great friends that will really hold me accountable. Even when I said that I wasn't a feminist because I didn't know what that word meant. Mm -hmm. You know, someone pulled me aside in a quiet space and didn't shame me, didn't judge me. My friend Shannon, she just says, sweetheart, I love you. And I just want to show you what the Webster's definition in the dictionary says about what it is to be a feminist. And it's just equality. And so like- So are you a feminist? Yes, sir. I am. I am a feminist. And I think it's a beautiful thing to want equality for all females, for all women. And I know in addition that there are gentlemen out there that can hold space for strong women and that can lift them up and that can empower them. And they see the beauty and equality in women as well. I don't think it's men versus women. I think it's just all of us recognizing our power. And what about that Snapchat video? Which Remember one? The Snapchat where it was like the Obama. Oh, the uh, the Instagram Live. Yeah. Video. Oh, Instagram Live. Sorry, not yes. Snapchat. In well, what, what happened? It was okay. So here's what happened: is okay. that um, in my attempt to make a joke, I mis- I made a mistake. Um, I said it wrong, and something really triggered me. Um, and you know, when you get triggered, sometimes you react and it's all about that reaction. You know, someone was coming for my hair again. I was like, I had had it with people saying I'm not pretty enough, you know, if I don't have my black hair and I snapped and I said something wrong and I made a mistake and 
You know, it may be misinformed and it may have been from my conditioning. It may have been something I wasn't aware of because it was so subconscious that I just said it. And then I was like, okay, well, I made another mistake very publicly. And do you, do you understand, uh, and I've not heard you talk about that before. So I want to push about, do you understand why people reacted that way, given your role as a white woman with incredible amounts of privilege? Yes. I, first and foremost, like, I have lots of white privilege. I'm coming to terms with that. And um, I know that, like, I'll never understand certain things because I am white and because I live this life, even though I've worked really hard for it. I'm not discrediting hard work and, like, you know, fruits of your labor. You work hard for something, sow seeds, grow it, nurture it, it's going to grow. So I'm not dismissing anything that I've made created for myself. But I understand that I was born as a a white woman with privilege. And I will never understand the inequalities and the social justices of people of color, minorities, struggles. I'll never understand it. And all I can do is take my light and try and shine a light on those injustices, on those things that are not fair, that are not real, that um, are not met with empathy and acceptance and tolerance. And that's what I can do. And it's a hard thing for me to do, right? Sometimes it's hard for me because like, you know, like I don't always operate as a, I want to be a Buddha, but I'm not a Buddha. My ego gets in the way. My judgment gets in the way. But my intention has always been pure. And You know, I do make mistakes under this crazy microscope, but um, I think that my willingness to try still uh, is really important because I think a lot of people are scared to try because they don't know how to ingest all the information or they're just like me. Like they will never understand certain things because they are born with this privilege. So they're scared. They don't know how to do it. But all they have to do is educate themselves. Yep. Maybe have healthy discourse. Maybe have hard conversation. What would you suggest? Yeah, so I'd say I'd push and say it's. I don't think that it's that you can't understand, right? Because some of this is about understanding institutional racism in that sure. the system was like designed to disadvantage a whole set of people. One hundred percent. And you can learn that, and you have. I and, I'm, you, and I'm and, and I'm learning, learning that, that right? through many right. different yeah. many different things. Yes. I'm saying, whoa, the cards are not right here. Yeah. And yeah. this is crazy. It's like voter ID, mass incarceration. It's crazy. You talked about the 13th. Mass incarceration. Yeah. That so is, you can understand those things. I mean, you watch watch his 13th once. Right. Okay. So that's huge. And when you think about using your platform, like you said, to shine yes. a light, I think that you can do those things. So I think yeah. that, that is important. And understanding too, teasing out this this work hard notion, right? Is that there's a some of it, and I think you talked about this as a white person in this country. Uh, like you didn't work hard for every Band-Aid to look like you, right? And you didn't work hard for every baby doll to look like you. Like it, those things happen because white has become what normal is in this in this world, right? And that is the privilege of whiteness. Mm-hmm. So that is what we're trying to like dismantle. Uh, but I think you're right about like I think you you can. We need learn to a we ton, need to know? bring we need to bring everybody into the conversation. It's not just people that are white need to be there. Like in everything I do now. Yep. Everything I do, I want it. It has to be absolutely equally diverse. So, for instance, I have some shoes, and I have a shoe line like you see right I know, here. I, saw. I was like, I have a know, shoe I line. I don't wear those that kind of shoes, right? Uh, and and the very in, in one of the um, 
in one of the campaigns, in the very first one, um, you know, they were ha- they had some uh, uh, leg models, and they didn't have all colors represented. And I was like, uh, "What's up with this? Like, they just didn't they didn't think about like it. races? You mean all, of them? All of races? The, of yeah, the all races? Models, all yeah. colors? And it's not that they they I don't know if they didn't think about it or what have you because it wasn't the norm." It wasn't the norm. And so I said, no, we're not starting until we have everybody represented as best as we can, as best as we can. And like that was like just an easy way for me to transition in taking my power and making it action, making it an action with my spotlight that I have. There we go. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Now, one of the last things I want to say about race is that you tweeted a defense of Leslie Jones. Yes. Not uh, not too long ago. I mean, I think it was like in the past year. Yeah. Where you mentioned Massage Noir, which Sorry, is the uh, intersection of misogyny and I learned blackness. I that from reading. Specifically towards black women that was coined by Moya Bailey, I believe. Yes. Um, what, like, how did you... I, I remember when you tweeted it because Twitter was sort of like, look at Katy Perry talking about Massage Noir. Um, <laughs> She's like, how'd she do that? And people were like... She's an oxymoron. <laughs> well, people were just... I think it was, you know, in the activist community, people have been talking about Massage Noir and, and the specific injustices that black women face for yes. a long time. But you said it in that, in that day, and I've always wanted to ask you sort of, like, what led you... How did you stumble upon it? Like... Well, I saw it being, I saw, I, I read an article. I forget where I read the article. Um, you know, I read lots of different articles across the board and different publications and news sources. I'm always kind of trying to just get the tone of everything. Um, and then I do the kind of digest and is like, oh, is this, is this the yellow light, the red light or the green light? Okay. You know? Um, and I read that and I had, uh, I'd seen all the that stuff happening uh, to Leslie with, you know, pictures and the horrible, like, injustice and threats and verbal abuse and, like, you know, the, the online abuse. And I was just like, this is horrible. This is horrible for her, for women, for black women. And, like, this, I have a platform on Twitter. I can retweet things. So it's like, stop this, stop this abuse. And I got to meet her and I didn't even really know her, but like, I, you know, I have, I've, I've like sent pictures before because I've been in long distance relationships, you know what I'm saying? And I love my lovers and I love them really good and I want to treat them sometimes. Okay. Sorry. I don't know if that makes anybody a little nervous, but it's like, that is not a crime and that is not a problem. And what happened to her was a crime. And it was a problem and it was an injustice and it was based on race. And I saw that so clearly just by like some of the things that I've been learning along the way. And I had never really met, I had met her, but I didn't really know her. And like now that I met her and saw her on SNL and I saw her and she's such a beautiful person. And like, again, like I don't, I will never understand certain things, but I know what it, it feels like to be bullied as a woman. Okay. And I don't know how it feels like to be bullied as a black woman, but even as a white woman in my small little way, it still sucks. It hurts. And it was magnified a million times for her on that particular day in that particular week. And I felt just one tiny sand inch of what she probably felt. And I was like, you know what? 
I can, I can just be there for you. I can stand in solidarity. I can stand in support for you with my powers. And this is Twitter and this is my influence or whatever it is, the weird thing that I have. And that's what I did. And what are you, given, given your reflections, is sort of in acknowledging the growth that you have made and the growth that you need to continue to make. Continue right? every single day. Uh, what, are you, what have you done? What have you put in place either in your, in your, in your own personal life, in your professional life, like to make sure that you are getting feedback before the, the problems become problems? Sure. Like, what does that look like? Well, uh, oof, I'm going to fail. Let's just get it real. Let's, let's be real. I'm going to fail because of where I come from, because of my privilege, because of my conditioning. What can you do to make to, right? to mitigate that? I just, just want to say that, okay. but I don't want to promise the world. Yeah, that yeah. I, I'm not saying I, promise. I'm, I'm not saying... going to promise the world that I'm not, right? Yes, okay. But I want to try. And I want to try and re-educate myself. I want to um, surround myself uh, with diverse people that are smarter than me, that can speak on their personal struggles. I want to hold space and empathize. I want to learn origins. I want to learn information, history, context. I want to, um, I just want to do the right thing and I want to be a good example. You know, so that other people can be a, can see that and want to be a good example as well. So I just have to continue to educate myself, and education is key with everything. And where do you go for inspiration? Like, where do you go to get filled back up when you have tough days, or or what music or art inspires you? Like, where do you go to get your oh, to I, get I go filled to the back museums. up? Really? Yeah, I like go to the museums all around the world. I love art. I love um, sculptures and structures and paintings and uh, modern art. And I love it because it's up to interpretation. And I don't really, you know, I think like people are like, don't tell me what I should think. I want to discover it on my own. I want to learn the truth on my own. And like, that's why a lot of my songs are suggestive. It's like, I'm not trying to tell anyone what to think, but like, it's okay to pose the question. Do you still listen to gospel music? Oh, yeah. For instance, um, when right before I was doing the Super Bowl, I didn't watch the game. I didn't watch anything. You know, I couldn't like get into the game. I wanted to. (laughs) I really, I really, really wanted to. Why couldn't you get into the game? Um, because it was a little bit too distracting because knowing that that time, that pressure was building. Okay, yeah, yeah. You know, um, and I was like rooting for my friend Russell Wilson. And the whole time I had no idea what was going on. And um, I was listening to gospel music because... Who? Who do you listen to? Who do you still listen to? um, I mean, like, Winans. Okay. And like T.D. Jakes or Kirk Franklin. like Kirk those, Franklin has some hits. And those people are anointed. And those people, I can feel the spirit. And I can feel God. And I can feel something bigger than me. This beautiful thing. This thing that I do not know. That I can't put my finger on. I can feel it through this music. And it was also something that made me feel like a child. And I wanted to like, I really wanted to acknowledge that child. I really wanted to acknowledge You got it. I really wanted to acknowledge that that little girl, like Catherine Hudson, was enough. And gospel takes you there? And gospel takes me there. It was enough. It brings me back to being a little kid, being in church, not having to monetize anything, 
you know, not having to make these professional decisions. And it brought me back to like the spirit and the soul of it all. And so it brought me back to facing Catherine Hudson and going, you are enough. And that you was, deserve it. That's what got you to the Super Bowl? And like, that's, that's what, what got me through the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes I'm crying about it because it, you know, sometimes it hurts that I didn't acknowledge that for so long. You know? How did you start to acknowledge it? Like what was? Um, Many different lessons, hard lessons. Um, you know, relationships, therapy, meditation. Yoga. I saw you had yoga. In yoga. The house. You know, acknowledge like not running from myself. Mm-hmm. When you stop running for your from yourself and you have to face yourself, sometimes it's scary as F. <laughs> it's so scary. You finally have to look at yourself, and that person is like a broken person. And that person is, you know, not been developed. And that person is still like a little kid searching for answers. And so I've just been showing up for Catherine Hudson. And she's turning into a teenager. And she's 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 pretty cool. I love it. Is that is that some of the impetus behind witness? Yeah. Wanting to be seen as who I am, I guess, and heard and knowing that like I'm not the only one that wants to be seen and heard. Like I feel like everybody wants to be seen and heard. And not seen and heard on their Instagram and not seen and heard, you know, on whatever facade that they're painting or hiding behind. They wanted to be seen as just like this, like, you know, I'm a dork. I'm a full on dork. You know what I'm saying? And like, let me be a dork. Is there a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Like something that you go back to? Uh, I mean, there's a couple of things. It's hard for me to pinpoint one of them. But I think, you know, one of them is just slow to speak and open to listening. Look, I thought I knew a lot, right? I actually thought I knew a lot even during the Hillary campaign. And then I realized I don't know a lot. And I need to reeducate myself. And I need to learn. And I need to listen. I'm grateful for my parents that they're in the, you know, they believe differently than I do. Because I can listen, I can learn. You know, I can learn How do you I talk know. to them about this current? You said, I thought you publicly said that they voted for Trump. Yeah, I did. How do you, what do you make of that, given that Trump has, has not been an ally to so no. many of the issues that you believe in, that Absolutely. I believe in? Well, I think sometimes people vote um, compartmentally. So uh, it's a hard, it's not a great way, I don't think I suggest voting, but they do it. They vote based on um, rules that they are accustomed to or, you know, beliefs and things like that. And so it's really hard when you vote compartmentalize Um, because I don't agree with some of the things that my parents believe in, but that's okay. It doesn't mean I stop loving them. It doesn't mean that I can't agree to disagree. And that's the thing that's, I think, really hard um, is that a lot of families are torn apart right now. Because, like, people will not talk to their parents who think something different or voted in a different way. Have you been able to push them a little bit? Like, is that... They, they've pushed me. I've pushed them. I've seen both sides of the street now. And I realized I needed to get off my high horse that I thought I knew everything. I need to listen. I need to learn. And I need to hold space. And, you know, I, all I can do is... All I can do is do that for me, for them. I can't control 
what they're going to do. But my hope is that at their core, they're amazing people, and I know that, that they would also listen, that they would also ask questions, and they would feel safe enough to ask those questions. Like, no one feels safe to ask questions. And it's tearing people apart. And it's tearing families. People will not have dinner with their families. And it's hard because it gets emotional. You want to yell. And it's just like, how can you believe in this way? Don't you know information, education? And they don't know. There is no manuscript. And we have to create a safe place for people to learn, to have compassion when they fall, to say, look, this is some information behind that. Just as many people have done for me. It's like they haven't said F you or you're this or you're that or you're a horrible person or, you know, you're not this, blah, blah. They said, look, this is like even you. Even you telling me and being here today, having this conversation, this is making me sweat, right? And it's healthy discourse. And so it's not all a bed of roses. And I don't want to face some of these things sometimes. But I need to face some of these things sometimes because they aren't right. And what does it mean to listen to people, though? It seems like we agree that, like, things like the Muslim ban are just, like, wrong, right? Like, building a wall seems, like, not to be a a sound I believe in immigration reform. So what does that mean? Uh, I don't know. exactly. I mean, I don't know what it looks like. I don't have all the books and the textbooks on what it is. But immigration reform is something I believe in. Um, And I also believe in the power of words. So you can't just say, you can't generalize. So like you- You you, can't generalize. You can't say all people are bad because there's bad people in everything. There's bad Christians. There's bad uh, Catholics. There's bad atheists. There's bad pop stars. There's bad, you know, all of it. But there's good in all of it as well. Yeah, there's good in all of and it. And the reason I was bringing you up can't generalize the wall really, and, the, um, really and the Muslim ban, and I think what I've heard you say before publicly, so push me if I'm misremembering, sure. about immigration reform is like making continue to make America a place where immigrants feel welcome, right? Like that is well, we are an, America is formed by immigrants. I mean, if we want to get real, we should have a conversation with the Native Americans. Correct. Because let's get real. Yes. And uh, so I say that because like, what does it mean to listen to people who like just believe in things that are just so destructive to other people's lives? Right. Like, what does that look like? Um, What does that look like? Like, talk to me. I get I get listening like theoretically. Right. I'm like, that makes sense to me. And then you talk to people who are like, like, if you boil it down. mm -hmm. Right. If you boil down the belief, I think you have to simplify the belief. Mm -hmm. Is it kind? Is it love thy neighbor as thyself? Is it kind? Is the intention right, pure? Is it? Is that what it is? Or is it kind of muddy? And what is that mud? And like face that mud. But at the end of the day, is it love thy neighbor as thyself? I mean, some of those scriptures are legit. They are legit. You know what I'm saying? But like, I like that some, quote. Some, Katy Perry, some of those scriptures are legit. Yeah, but You're some right. of them- yeah. Some of the messages in the Bible are strong. Absolutely. But yep. th- some of them have been sent through all kinds of filters and they've been played a game of telephone and one person has distorted it and one person has perverted it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Talking about uh, religion is you get a lot of pushback from like the religious right. I've seen- online because they they feel like they you think grew up I'm in the, the prodigal church, son you, you grew up in the church <laughs> and all of a sudden son. you like well they don't know yeah. me and they don't know that i have my own personal relationship with god and maybe it's not exactly what people think but people 
have to think what they think and I have to think and I'm allowed to think what I think and I respect them and I hope for respect as well but I can't control it and I think that like it's my journey it's my journey like I tell my parents thank you so much for praying for me because those prayers are strong the those that is energy that is verbiage that's rippling and it's hitting me and those prayers are strong and I'm feeling them and I believe in angels and I believe in God and I, you got to live your journey. I got to live my journey and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to triumph. I'm going to do all those things and God bless you on yours. And I hope you can do the same for me. There we go. Where do you go to, couple last questions. Where do you go to take care of yourself? Like what, what's self-care look like for you? Self-care. You, you live a crazy life. You, yeah. a lot of people looking at you like right now. Hi guys. Um, like, where do you go to get filled back up, like, when you are nearing empty? <sighs> yeah, my sister, she is my angel. And I go to a quiet place. I try to go to the countryside, wherever I'm at, somewhere that's not buzzing with noise and energy. And, you know, even if I can't escape physically, I go to a meditation so I've been giving these examples of meditation, which are so various, and some of them are mantra-based, and some are just mindful, and um, some you don't need to learn anything. Um, and it's just a way that I can meditate 20 minutes a day, or even for five minutes, to come back to present. Because really, all of my anxiety is about the future, or my guilt from the past, or shame, or judgment. That's where all the anxiety is from. You know, I hope, like, I have a great future. And that's anxiety, you know, in a way sometimes because it can, like, eat you alive. So I just need to come back to right here because this is the only moment that I have ever had. Cool. Last question? Yes, Because sir. Uh, we're nearing time. Well, there are a couple questions I'd like to ask you, Oh, okay. okay. So how, how can I, because I love bringing worlds together. Okay. And I don't want to live in a segregated world. Mm -hmm. I don't want to live in a separate world. Like, you stay here, you stay here. And I want to be educated, of course, about all those things. But especially, like, in music, and I've been doing it forever. Like, I've been able to collaborate with people like Kanye West and Juicy J and Missy Elliott and Lenny Kravitz and now Migos and Nicki Minaj and all of those people and Skip Marley. How, how can I collaborate with those people and lift them up? and bring my spotlight and share it and give them that spotlight? How can I do that in a way that's amazing and respectful and good? Yeah, so we think about allyship as an invitation, not a self-appointment, right? Mm -hmm. So you become an ally when somebody invites you into, into that space and, sure. and talks to you about how you can use your privilege to support sure. their work. Allyship is not you saying, like, I'm going to do this, and then you doing it sort of on behalf of people without them being present for that discussion, right? Sure. So I think about what you can continue to do or what you could start doing in some places uh, is uh, use your privilege to make sure that marginalized communities are, are taken care of and are Absolutely. represented, right? Which is the shoe example. Yeah. Uh, to partner with people and be really explicit about like, I, I want to help you grow, right? I know that I you have a huge platform, right? Yeah. And you can say to people, I know I have a big platform. I want to figure out how to share some Absolutely. of this light. So like, let's talk about how to share that. Absolutely. And then putting into practice the difference between appreciation and appropriation, right? Tell us what the 
definition, uh, the differences, because I want to hear that one more time, and I want everyone to take this in, the definition between appreciation and appropriation. Yep, so appreciation is saying uh, I'm participating in this culture, yes. and I'm acknowledging my participation, and I'm acknowledging the weight of that. So the systemic wrongdoings, like the problem with headdresses, right, is that like it's hard to appreciate a headdress because they are cultural uh, pieces of clothing that are worn for specific things, right? They're right. not like decorative. Right. Uh, so when people wear them, like just walking down the street as a as a part of a party, right? That's not actually appreciating the culture. You're like right. mocking it in some ways, right? Right. You're using it as just like flippant something. Yeah. You're not acknowledging the power. Correct. That it has. And the trauma, right? That it sure. might have been, you're not acknowledging any of that. That is, sure. that is the appropriation bucket. Sure. Uh, so appropriation is participating in culture in, not acknowledging the roots, not acknowledging ownership, not acknowledging origin, sure. not acknowledging struggle, okay. right? So appreciation is you walking in your privilege and saying that, like, I am not a part of this culture, right? So I need to do my work to make sure that I am sure. being respectful in this moment. Absolutely. Uh, and knowing that is actually a huge part into, like, changing your behavior, right? Absolutely. And then having people around you who can check you. So, like, when you are... You're like, I think I want to do this. And then it's like, yeah. Somebody's like, okay, Katie, that like. What's that called? That's my social. I don't know. Is this, I'm uh, supposed no, to know no, this? Is this like, is this? No, it's something I was, I, I forgot what it was called. Okay. It was like, it's like my, my squad that helps me, yeah. like lifts me up and is also not afraid to check me to when. push you. Yeah, yeah. And push me and yeah. give me information when I'm wrong. Like just surround yourself with people like that, that have more information than you do. Yeah. It's amazing. And put yourself in places, too, where people can hear you, like, reflect in process, right? What does that mean? You live in a space mm -hmm. where people don't always have proximity to the way you think, right? Because you live on, like, a... I get to, I get to treat, I get to go the whole yeah. world. <laughs> so trying to think about, you know, you have a unique opportunity to help people um, process the world because yeah. you just have such a big platform. I think about you using the word massage noir, right? For so many people who aren't activists or who are not steeped in the work of Moya um, or other queer activists, black female activists, like they had never heard that word. And, and you using your platform help people enter into a conversation differently. Yeah. And like you can continue to do that. I think that some people's frustration was your uh, quietness around the appropriation conversation. Like you just, they didn't hear you talk about it much. Well, um, but I you have. I was strong enough to do it. And also like no. sometimes the media just burns you at the stake. And takes all of your words out of context. And like, how can you take any of these words out of context right now? How can you do that? And like, that's, I just actually had an interview before this where I can tell that there was an agenda and there was just like a trap here, a trap there, a trap here, a trap. And they weren't big traps and people were just doing their job. You know, they've yeah. got people that they're, you know, um, that they have to call editors and bosses and things. They don't want to lose their job. They have their families. But it was like a dance where there was just a trap and a trap and a trap. And I was like, no, I'm not going to fall into that trap. But sometimes it gets so big that it's just like orbiting. And then, you know, I got scared that this something that I built up, you know, that I worked so hard for was just going to be taken down by something that I, I didn't have the information by. And I made a mistake, and I I didn't know how to face it because I wasn't strong enough. And I was really scared. I was really scared to try. And I'm not scared to try, and I know a lot of people are scared to try, and hopefully they can find the courage to try 
and to have the conversations. I am interested to see what your world looks like sort of post this, right? Like how you put into practice this awareness that you sure. have, because it is easy for people to reflect, right? And to say, to own like, okay, this didn't work and to acknowledge that like, I'm not gonna be perfect, right? Like I'm not gonna know yeah. everything and I'm not, yeah. I'm in, I am imperfect, uh, but not using that as an excuse to misbehave, yeah. right? But yeah. using it as like a, as an honest statement yeah. that the like pushes you. The whole world is keeping you. me accountable. Yes, the whole world is keeping <laughs> me accountable. The whole world is keeping me accountable. And I hope that, you know, we can keep each other accountable through compassion, with compassion, with compassion. Yeah, yeah. And knowing that like some people's rage and frustration comes from being a part of a marginalized group that always Absolutely. has to like be compassionate, right? Like people be down on us and then Absolutely. We, we always- Absolutely, 100%. Do you know what I mean? I get that. And like, you know, I trigger things in people and I, it's, I don't want to, but I do. And that's not just because of me. It's because of the system. It's because of tons and tons of time and tons of cards being stacked against. Yeah. And we think about white privilege as, as a set of, um, sort of actions and decisions that make the fact that you're white mean so much more in this context than anything else, right? Mm -hmm. So trying to think about how can you use that privilege to disrupt that privilege is like part of the core work, right? Like what We're does that look like? It. We're gonna flip it. We're That's gonna flip it. So I'm excited to see you put that into practice. I actually met one of your background singers, backup yes. singers. Back, yes, backup. L or Cherry. Backup singers, background. Yes, my women that support me with vo voices. Yes, okay. <laughs> LB. L, yeah, yeah she's yeah. amazing. She's been with you for seven years. She has, yeah. yeah, yeah. She has, and, I, you know, she's been amazing this whole time, and she's been a fantastic person, a fantastic co-worker, and she's always supported me, and I love her, and I learned so much from her as well. And I think we see each other in a new light as well. You know, a light that I didn't know how to see. And I'm so glad that she's there and she's had, you know, she's been an amazing example. Yeah, I met her uh, outside and I was like, what do you do here? She was like, I'm one of the backup singers. She's a powerful woman. She's a powerful black woman and she like walks in her power. And she's and she's discovering her power too. And I support her with that. And Cherry and Tony and all the people that I have around me, um, whether whatever background they come from and race, I support them all. Well, Thanks so much. There we go. <laughs> done and really done. Appreciate you. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. And now my interview with Clarence Wardell III, the Director of Repurposing for Results with the What Works Cities Initiative. He was most recently a member of the U.S. Digital Service at the White House where I first met him. And now he'll talk about his new work. Clarence, thanks so much for joining uh, me today on Pod Save the People. So we first met when you were working at the White House at the U.S. Digital Service. Can you talk uh, a little bit about what the U.S. Digital Service is and how you got there? And what was the work you guys did? Yeah, um, well, great to great to be on. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, yeah, I served uh, during the Obama administration, as you mentioned, as a member of the U.S. Digital Service, uh, which was a team of engineers, designers, product managers um, that were brought into government uh, to help build, repair, and improve the services uh, that government delivers to the American people. And so it was originally kind of born out of the healthcare.gov uh, rescue and turnaround, if you will. So this recognition that uh, you can't divorce policy from implementation. And oftentimes implementation, uh, more often than not these days, there is a digital and online component to it. And so the idea was the president was saying, you know, why can't uh, American people expect 
if you can go to Amazon and have a clean experience and get your books delivered to you the next day, why shouldn't you expect the same thing from government? Um, and so, as you saw during the president's second term, actually, he put a lot of resources behind bringing in tech and innovation talent into government. And so he launched initially the Presidential Innovation Fellowship, which was how, how I initially joined the Obama administration. Um, and then things like the U.S. Digital Service, ATNF, and as you know, um, the CTO's, CTO's office, so that was the Chief Technology Officer's office at the past. Um, so in all of those efforts were around uh, kind of pushing forward to a more digital government. Um, and so while I was at the White House working at the U.S. Digital Service, uh, I worked on a few different projects, primarily, um, but I think the way you and I came into contact with one another was our work on the President's Police Data Initiative, um, as well as some of the work that I was doing with DOJ around criminal justice and data. So Clarence, we met because of the lack of police data that existed out there. Sam, uh, part of our team, I know was working closely with you and in, in the U.S. Digital Service. I met with uh, you all a couple of times, and Brittany was on the task force for 21st century policing. Uh, what was the outcome of that of that work with the police data initiative, uh, and where's that work now? Yeah, great. Thanks for that question, Dre. Um, so just kind of the quick background on it. Uh, as you know, the, the police data initiative work was uh, in large part a response to the recommendations of the task force on 21st century policing, um, which out of the 59 recommendations that they made, 14 dealt specifically with this need uh, for departments to better leverage data and technology to build trust and be more responsive and accountable to citizens. Um, and as you know, kind of that fall 2014, post-Ferguson, uh, a lot of the conversation from activists like yourself, Sam, um, and others was around the lack of data uh, about policing and particular officer-involved shootings. Uh, but what we wanted to do through, through the White House was really say, yes, the officer-involved shooting piece is important, but also there's just generally a lack of data around police-citizen interactions more broadly across the country. Um, and so our effort was focused on how do we enable and compel, in some ways, departments to openly release data around police-citizen interactions uh, at, at a very detailed, granular level, so including uh, demographic data, disaggregated information. Um, and so the police data initiative was born really out of that conversation. Um, and so our, our push for, for that work was really, we started by uplifting uh, departments around the country who had kind of proactively been doing some of this work. And so this was an uh, approach that Megan Smith will also call, often call scout and scale. So you, uh, one, of, one of the theses of the White House was, if there's a problem that's risen to the national level, there's often a community or an organization out there that has solved it in a local way. And so how can we as the White House basically uplift that work and put resources and attention on it to help it scale? And so what we saw uh, in the fall, winter of 2014, we looked around the country and we saw pockets of departments who were trying to respond and be more transparent. And so uh, folks like Chief David Brown in Dallas, Texas, who had put 12 years of officer-involved shooting data online uh, at a very disaggregated and detailed level. Uh, we looked at Austin, Texas, Montgomery County, Maryland, Louisville, Kentucky, and we saw these departments starting to move in that um, in that direction, but all doing it in a slightly different way. And so what we wanted to do is say, Let's uplift this as a best practice. Let's put resources around it. Let's bring in the community of engineers, data scientists, researchers, and really start a community of practice that shows that you can release data around police-citizen interactions, um, and, and, and then here's how you do it, right? And so that, that effort was initially launched in uh, late or early April 2015, uh, where we brought together about 20 departments at that, at that point who were willing to release data around police-citizen interactions. 
um, brought in some data scientists, researchers, and really started to lay the groundwork for the work uh, for the Police Data Initiative. And so what it's looked like since then um, is essentially commitments from departments to release data around uh, things like complaints against the police, officer-involved shootings, use of force, uh, uniform citations, uh, traffic and pedestrian stops um, through an open data format. And so we've had to date around 136 jurisdictions across the country who have made that commitment, uh, slightly over 200 data sets that have been released today. Um, in an open data format. Um, and in post-Obama administration, uh, the work has been continued to be carried on by the Police Foundation, as well as a coalition of partners across the country who've, who've helped departments do this work. And so folks like Code for America, uh, University of Chicago's Data Science for Social Good folks, uh, and a few others. And so we've still seen, even this in this environment, um, some momentum around this work, uh, primarily because it's, it's fundamentally local. Uh, locally driven work and where departments are accountable to their communities. And where can people go to find that those publicly released data sets? So there's a there's a site hosted by the Police Foundation. It's called uh, policedatainitiative.org. So pretty easy for folks to find. Uh, you can go on there and see the departments that are participating as well as the data sets that they've released on their local uh, open data portals. And so uh, you'll, you'll see, like I said, a whole host of data sets there. And, and one of the real efforts that we wanted to push for uh, was not just officer-involved shooting data, but really understand what does day-to-day policing look like in a community. Um, and so you I'm sure as you all are familiar with the the Ferguson DOJ report really highlighted that oftentimes it's not the high level uh, uses of force where we're talking about officer involved shootings, but the low level day to day interactions um, that can either build or erode trust in communities. And so we can't our thesis was you can't address those types of things through policy or training or any anything else if you don't understand the landscape. And so our push has really been around uh, not just officer involved shooting data, but a lot of the other data sets that you'll see on the site. And, and wh- what's the work you're doing now, now that you're no longer, you're not a member of the Trump administration uh, and you <laughs> have moved on since since the Obama days? Uh, where are you now? Yeah, no, good question. So I left the administration end of January or the, the Obama administration end of January. Um, I think post uh, uh, the election in November, like a lot of folks, uh, started to try to figure out, well, where was the, the where was the next place that I could actually invest my energy and, uh, and efforts to really make a difference uh, for people? Um, and I looked across the landscape, and for me, I wanted to do more work at the city level. Um, and so a lot of the work at the Police Data Initiative was, was fundamentally city work. Also got a chance to do some work around uh, with the city of Flint when I was at the White House. And so really wanted to dive deeper in, in, in there. And so I joined uh, in March an initiative called What Works Cities Initiative, uh, which is driven through Bloomberg Philanthropies as the director of Repurpose for Results. Um, and so that, that work is fundamentally uh, how to, about, again, how do we build the capacity of cities to use data and evidence uh, for policymaking and decision-making. And so um, uh, what the Bloomberg uh, Foundation was really interested in was we see a lot of the bigger cities, so your New York's, your uh, D.C., Chicago's that have this really good data infrastructure and capability. Uh, but when you looked at kind of a tier of cities right below, so this 100,000 population between 100,000 and a million, uh, they didn't have that same capability. And so a lot of the work uh, for What Works Cities initiative is how do you build those capabilities, whether it's helping cities do open data initiatives, building out performance management or data analytics systems, or helping cities do kind of low-cost or randomized control trials uh, to better understand how different policy interventions work. So, Clarence, what's your role uh, within What Works Cities? 
Yeah, so I just I, I came on as the uh, director of Repurpose for Results, uh, which is kind of a weird title. I'm, I'm probably the first director of such a thing uh, in the country, if I may. Um, and so what, what it is, though, is working with cities to help them better understand the outcomes and results they're getting for the programs that they invest in right now and where they are not achieving uh, the outcomes that they're driving for, uh, helping them shift funds away from those programs towards more evidence-based and citizen-centered programs. Um, and so one of the things that, that we often use in a, as an example uh, might be, for instance, the D.A.R.E. program, right, uh, where uh, a, there were a lot of studies done in the 90s around the effectiveness of D.A.R.E. in terms of uh, substance abuse prevention. And what we actually saw from the results of that research was that uh, kids who participated in the D.A.R.E. program were more, no more likely to substance abuse um, than those who didn't. And so one question might arise of, okay, for, with the city that's strapped with resources, are we continuing to invest in that type of program? So often the answer is more political than anything. And so one of the things that we're trying to work on with cities is to help, A, do that identification to say, where are you investing funds right now? Are you achieving outcomes? And so, if, and if not, looking at that as an opportunity cost and saying, and working with citizens and cities to say, okay, where could we better allocate these dollars for to actually achieve results or to address higher priority issues within the city? Um, and so one of the other examples that I really like is a, a program that was based out of Richmond, California, which is now called Advanced Peace, uh, that was run by a gentleman by the name of Devone Bogan. Um, and so it looked at uh, youth violence prevention and particularly the steady increase in shootings in Richmond, California over about a five-year span. And so what they did and what uh, Devone and his team did, they went in and they started to look at the data to look at who the service providers in the city were working with, who were the actual shooters within the city. And then what they recognized was that um, that none of the service providers were touching the people who were actually pulling the triggers and responsible for the gun violence in the city. And so what Devone and his team did is said, okay, well, we're not achieving results or outcomes for this work. Let's think through a program or model that actually touches the folks um, who are most affected by this violence or who are perpetrating the violence. And so he built out a program, pulled some of the money away from the traditional service providers and built out a program, a fellowship program that essentially works with the folks who are pulling the triggers. Over a two-year span, I think they saw about a 70% reduction in gun violence within Richmond, California. And so they're not now starting to do more studies on this work and trying to replicate it in a few other cities. But that's the type of model um, that we're trying to work with through the What Works Cities initiative and say, again, if, if a city is investing in something that's just not achieving outcomes, we need to rethink our fundamental model for um, how they're allocating those dollars. And so starting to do that work across things like affordable housing, as well as some uh, policing work as well. And, and what can people do to get involved in this work? So in the What Works Cities work, um, the, the thing that I really want to stress is uh, so if you notice, kind of my, my career, in particular over the last four or five years, has really been doing this work from within government um, to help drive um, through program implementation several of the policy issues that I know you and then a lot of your listeners care about. Um, for me, I think it's, it's, it's really important that folks uh, in some in some ways show up, not, not only as elected officials, but also working inside government. And I think one of the things that we're seeing now is actually a lot of opportunities popping up on the local level for folks to come serve within government, whether it's in the innovation 
or data space. Uh, I know, for instance, Baltimore has been hiring uh, folks around building out an innovation team within the mayor's office, as well as put out a hire for a chief data officer in the police department. Um, and so one of the places I would love to point people to is there's, uh, it's called uh, Code for America has a public interest tech jobs board. And so you can go to jobs.codeforamerica.org and find different opportunities all across the country uh, for folks to come serve uh, within government. And, and, and that was really the thesis of, of the U.S. Digital Service and a lot of the work that the president pushed. It was, you don't even necessarily have to make a career out of it, but if you can come up come in and show uh, and work within government for a year or two, um, you'd really see both uh, the, the services that you care about improve, but also maybe gain a different perspective on the work that you do. And what advice do you have uh, to people who are frustrated in this moment, who feel like there's nothing that they can do, who think that the government has never worked for them? Like, what do you tell those people, given that you've worked on the inside uh, of an administration and now you are at a partner organization uh, who's working for equity and justice? What do you say to people? Yeah, I say, you know, just more broadly kind of echoing on that, that same refrain is, is uh, you know, roll up your sleeves and get into the fight, whether it's inside of government or outside. You know, I've often had these conversations with folks on, you know, what can they do um, and is it really worth serving in government? And I think you, it's a both it's a both and approach. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity, particularly through service providers and nonprofits at the local level, as well as, again, with city government uh, to move the needle on some of the issues that folks care about. Uh, but what I will say, too, is, is, is a lot of this stuff may not happen in the way that you originally want to, wanted to see it when you initially got involved. And so one of the, the things that I talk about with folks all the time is that, but for uh, protesters like yourselves and folks in the street driving the conversation, there wouldn't have been the space within the Obama administration to do what we did on the police data initiative. Um, and so I think that uh, whether, you know, folks have time to serve within government or not, that there's these different pressure points uh, that they can apply that they can push on around the issues that they care about. Cool. Well, again, thanks so much for joining us. And I hope that people uh, check out the resources that you've talked about. And I'll see you back on the pod soon. All right. Thanks, Ray. Look forward to talking soon. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to Pod Save the People. Make sure that you rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And make sure that you tell a friend to listen in. See you next week.